Hello, Legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, I catch up with Cub member Stuart Cook. Stuart is a serial entrepreneur that has been involved in companies such as Zembrero, The Entourage, Fitstop, and now is the CEO of Twio Capital, a business advisory firm and private investing office. He's also the co-CEO, along with his wife, Samantha, of Flav. Flav is a flavor-forward, plant-based restaurant franchise with big ambitions that has just launched and opened three new restaurants. He's someone that could give so much perspective on so many different companies and has been involved in companies that haven't done well and many that have. That makes his vision of business so broad. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We talked about how uh, life experiences and meeting new people can lead to your next big opportunity and normally are how you find your next big opportunity. Working with your wife and how to turn that into a huge strength and what separates the good from great companies. Stuart is an incredible entrepreneur, great friend of mine, an amazing club member. Hope you enjoy the show. So what's this new flave thing that I see everywhere? You, you, you've obviously got involved with a new business. Like it's with your wife, Samantha? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Flav is a flavor-forward business that just happens to be plant-based. So this is, you know, since leaving Zambrero, I've been investing and in working other companies and I decided that I wanted to make a massive impact, especially around climate change. And so, you know, my wife and I partnered together and, you know, we've brought on investors, an amazing team to go and build a, hopefully a global chain over the next few years uh, in plant-based food. And what do you mean flavor forward? It's just, it's got, got, got a good punch to it. Yeah. Well, I think the biggest thing is, is that when you realize and you get into business is that businesses are there to solve problems and restaurants are there to solve the problem as I'm hungry, feed me. And so, you know, my wife and I came up with the idea of, of creating a plant-based business because we were broad alive and, you know, became very aware of the impact that our everyday eating habits have had on the environment through animal agriculture. And so as much as people intellectually, including myself, know that going plant-based is better for themselves or better for the environment, or at least, you know, it may not be going the whole way, but at least reducing it at the end of the day is, is that when you, you reach for something, you want it to fill you up. You want it to taste amazing. You want it to be at the right price. You want it to be convenient. And then it's sort of like a fifth or sixth thing that you'll have that trigger go, Oh, okay, cool. If it does something better for me in the world, then I'll do it. But it has to tick all these boxes first. And so that's why we lead with flavor because, you know, if you like something and you make it easier to do good, then to do something negative, then people are going to do that because that's the 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 drivers behind their decision. I love the thinking behind that because it's not we're going to be successful because we're good for the environment. Mm. It's we're going to provide, we're going to solve the problem our customers have and what's going to make it more successful is because by, by allowing us to solve their problem, they're also helping the environment. Yeah, 100%. I, I think it's a far more sustainable Great word for this game. <laughs> Very good. It's a far more sustainable way for businesses to to um, make huge impacts for the world. Because I don't care what anyone says, business makes more impact to the world than governments. The businesses solve problems and they're actually sustainable. They produce, they, they bring in more than they let out, which means that they can continue growing and can continue fun- functioning in an efficient way. Um, 
I just think that that what you're doing is so clever. And the other thing is that really sometimes doing the right thing, it should be always, but sometimes doing the right thing or a good thing is also the trendy thing at the moment. Yeah. And you can catch that wave, you know, there's yeah, this wave going, which is to um, uh, save the planet or be environmentally responsible. And businesses are so clever that they can solve the same problems as they once did, but also help contribute to solving that problem. Definitely. And yeah. it's just like, that's the wave you're on. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. No, incredibly exciting. And, uh, and I think that we learned that piece very much from Zambrero days because Zambrero, when I was CEO there, we implemented a play for play program where every time we fed somebody in our restaurants, we fed a child overseas. And we actually thought that, I mean, we did it for the right reasons, but we thought by pushing and leading with that, it would get people, more people in the door, but it actually didn't. And if anything, people don't want to be preached to, they don't want to be made to feel guilty. I agree. And so again, it was the product, it was the customer service, it was the convenience, the price, and then it was doing that good. But I think the biggest thing as well is, is that, especially in hospitality where labor is so important and also such a challenge, especially in Australia at the moment, is that you know it actually helps with getting investors, it helps with getting um, great people because if you want to work in hospitality, hospitality and get paid the same amount as the cafe down the road, do you want to be part of a brand that is building a better world or you know, making a little local business person a bit of money. Yeah, so it's also good. It's, it's also good. I mean, it's good for good for the world, good for your customers, but it's also good for your clients. Yeah, it's like what am I saying? Your staff, because you can hire people that are have passions that are in line with with what your brand stands for. I also think I've never actually had this thought before. No one's ever said it to me before. It's you're right. When 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 brands or companies lead with the righteousness. It's like, I don't need you to preach to me and what, I'm a bad person now because I don't buy from your your thing. And, and then it's also you start thinking, oh, I know you're just trying to make a dollar, yeah. you know, because business does need to make a dollar. Whereas when you do it your way, you flip it around, hey, we are a business, we do need to make money, we provide a great product or service, but we also do great for the world. It's a much more, up, uh, not upfront, um, honest. Yeah. Honest, like yeah. It, it, you, you, more transparent, yeah. you know, and you feel, wow, I do, I do want to work with yeah. that company, but we should probably do a, a bit of a recap of, of, um, of you because you're an incredibly interesting guest to have. And for me, friend to have, because I mean, we've already, you, you just mentioned two companies you've been involved in, um, um, Zambrero, which I'll, I really want to hear the story. I've actually never heard the story of how you got involved with Zambrero, but Zambrero, uh, Flav, uh, you've got the, your, uh, another current company, uh, Twio, which is that a VC firm or is that a, a, a so Twio after I exited Zambrero, I made a number of different investments in early stage companies, and that sort of has expanded from being my family office of investments to do also do corporate advisory and virtual CFO services. Okay, so yeah, you've put your personal investments and then advisory and services into one. Correct. Uh, you were also one of the first investors uh, uh, in the Entourage, which is a fantastic business education company. Um, that that I know very well as well. Um, and what you also had, we were involved heavily in a big gym chain, was it? What, yeah, Fit Fitstop. Fitstop. Yeah, Are you still a, involved in Fitstop? Yeah, so I'm still the chairman there. I've been there, the chairman for the last five years, and we're just about to open our hundredth location and enter into the US market. Holy shit, that's a big deal, especially for a a, a gym chain. Yeah, you know, because it, it's hard to take on the big guys, and how do you? What's your point of difference as a gym? How do you make that different? How do you make it scalable and work? Like 
I'd imagine. Anyway, so my point is, there's a lot to talk about. We, we should probably try to slim it down. And what I think is most interesting is that you have a far more in-depth understanding of what makes comp- companies great as opposed to what prevents them from growing. You know, because some companies kind of bust through that stage and, and they, they, they open 100 chains, uh, 100 gyms. Some companies get stuck at one gym. And because you've you've been involved in so many companies, um, and I'm sure you've been involved in some that haven't grown as well. That, that that's Definitely. just kind of part of the part of part of business. You've really seen that what what makes the successful ones successful, and, and I think that should be something that we we focus uh, we really focus on today. Um, but when you where did you start your career? Like so, what was your first business? So my first foray into the business world, I come from, you know, just outside of Coffs Harbour, grew up in a small hobby farm on five and a half acres. My parents are school teachers. My brother and sister are school teachers. Uh, I am the black sheep of the family in terms of when it comes to that. But, you know, moving down to Sydney, I'm a twice uni dropout, dropped out of electrical engineering, then accounting and finance. I did quite well at school, but I realized that uh, university wasn't for me. I was... To be honest, I was suckered into my first actual business job. Um, I was doing door-to-door sales, uh, selling Optus in Sydney. And so it was described online as a, a marketing role. And then they did the reverse sell on me. And, you know, I, but it was an amazing experience for me, you know, 100% commission, uh, selling Optus. Go, you know, one day you're in Vaucluse, one day you're out in Rudy Hill in Bankstown, you know, but it was a really amazing way to be able to like get a really good fundamental understanding of sales and selling because everything you're doing from whether or not you're convincing your friends to go to movies to, you know, asking a girl out on a date to a big business deal is like there's lots of life that requires those different ability to relate to people, to build rapport, to be able to make get them to yes and to be able to know when to back off as well. And so I think that was a really valuable lesson for me. Then went into corporate corporate sales for a big HR consultancy company and then uh, started my entrepreneurial journey with Zambrero. And a lot of members that we've spoken to actually have started in door-to-door sales. And, I mean, I had a shit first job too, which was calling like an arrears team, calling people for their debt. But but what I think is so good about those jobs is that they expose you to like a lot of adversity Oh, and so much rejection. Yeah, that's what oh, it is. It's just so like, no, rejection. no, no. And you yeah. just learn that, well, you know, it, it does happen eventually, you know, and, and it creates that belief that, you know, once you, if I do 99 and there's, they're all no's, I might be thinking if you stop at that 99, you're like, fuck, there's no yeses. But once you hit that hundred and it's a yes, then every single one after that, you're believing, okay, this could be a yes. This could be a yes. And I, I think that's what it teaches you. Yeah. The Sean Grant, who is the, the gentleman who owned the, the company, I think it was PhD marketing, who was an amazing mentor for me. But he sort of started off by saying is if you've got a deck of cards and they're all face down and the aces represent sales, how do you actually find the aces? You just have to turn them over one at a time. And so for every one that you turn over that is not an ace, it's actually one closer to the sale that you know is there somewhere. And so we were given 50 houses a day and we had to go through all of those until we found those sales. You got to find the ace. Oh, yeah. That's a great. It's a great analogy, though. Yeah. And and so, how did you get involved in Sembrero? So yeah. So sorry. No, I was going to say because I, I mean I, I don't know the 
the founder, I guess. But yeah. is he a doctor by any chance? Yeah, Someone's told me that before. Yeah, he's a medical he's doctor. Bondi, maybe? He's a medical doctor. Yeah. So I reversing a little bit is that, you know, being brought up in Coffs Harbour, you know, I thought my life would might go a very different way. But coming down into Sydney, the big smoke and, you know, being so excited about the opportunity as well, uh, that was really presented to me. And I think one of the biggest things that I realized is that, you know, when I first moved to Sydney, I was afraid that everyone was going to be so amazing at everything that they do that I was going to have to sort of go back with a tail between my legs and not have anything for me here. And so, you know, I realized that there are some people who work really hard, some people are really smart, some people are lazy, you know, and so there's a lot of opportunities if you really work hard and, you know, go after opportunities. And so I was over in India um, for two reasons. One was for a rotary uh, doing some aid work over there with the polio vaccinations, but then also Junior Chamber International, which was a young professional global networking opportunity, uh, which I went to. And Sam Prince was actually, uh, award, uh, he was awarded one of the 10 outstanding young people of the world. But I was fortunate enough to be sitting next to him on a bus on the way to the Taj Mahal after the award ceremony. And we got chatting and- Sorry, Sam is the founder Sam of Sam Prince, Zambrero. the founder of the Zambrero, was sitting next to me. He had two Mexican restaurants at the time. He was still a resident. So he'd finished his degree, but then doing his residency. But- I thought it was just, you know, it's funny to meet a doctor who's only a couple, who's 25, you know, massive overachiever, you know, finished school at 16 and, you know, went straight into medicine. But I was actually more intrigued and interested about the charity work he was doing. You know, his parents were brought up in rural Sri Lanka and he was paying homage to them by using some of the profits to be able to go and build schools and IT centers in Sri Lanka. And so I used all of my annual leave to go and join him for a month in 2009 to go and help him build IT centers at the end of the civil war in remote communities in Sri Lanka. And as part of that process, we liked working together. I was really inspired by what he wanted to achieve with Zambrero. And, you know, just before we left on that trip, you know, there was obviously lots of planning going on, but then he said, Hey, how about you come on board, be my business partner and CEO and help me grow this to a hundred locations over the next five years. You know, the moral of that story is new experiences and meeting new people or new experiences or doing anything leads to meeting new people. 100%. And new people are what lead to new opportunities. You know, imagine – and and also you were just being a good person, just going over to just do nice things for the world. But it's just the fact that you put yourself out there. And I feel like so many people don't do that. Like no one how, – like how often does someone do what you just described? Yeah. You know, it, it's it, – I haven't gone and done. Uh, I do a lot of shit, but but I haven't gone and done uh, what you just what, what you did, and yeah, that's my disadvantage. Because imagine who I could have met, what I could have learned, how that could have impacted my life. Like, I just think people need to do more uh, ex- experiences like, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I also think there's a, even simpler ways to do it. Is like, you know, when you you know when I first moved to Sydney, and I think this is probably one of the benefits of growing up in the country where everybody on your street you know uh, and you would say hello, you'd wave them as you're going down the street. And when I first moved to Sydney, my grandma sent me down a whole bunch of chocolate mud cakes to give to my neighbours and I was in an apartment and they were knocking. When I knocked on the door, they're like, oh, shit, who's this guy? How did they get in? And I was just introducing myself as a neighbour. But, you know, in, in, in big cities they don't do that as much. But you never know where those opportunities – like, you know, one of my – turning out to be one of my best investments – 
uh, is because my next door neighbor is an IP lawyer and I asked him, hey, what's the coolest thing that you've patented recently? And so by just asking that second question and talking to strangers and giving Having a that smile, relationship. Yeah, like yeah. there's – I think everybody has opportunities around them. It's whether or not they're able to, again, they're there like the cards on the on the table with the aces face down is that you just have to keep on turning them over until one comes. And yeah. But they're not doing it with a motive either. Like I think that's a big thing as well is like people will see through motives but if you just – being a good, genuine person, I think that paves the way for a lot of amazing opportunities. No, I completely agree. And so, you guys, so was was um, so you said he had two Mexican restaurants at yeah. that point. Was were they Zambreros? Yeah. Or, or they so he had two Zambreros. Two Zambreros. Enter you. Yeah, and so he said, "Would you like to come on board to be the CEO?" And I hadn't even tried the food, but I was looking at it. I was twenty three year old uni dropout, and the way that I live my life is is that. You know, when making big decisions is like, what's the worst case scenario? Like what's the worst thing that could happen and that's X. And if I'm okay with X, then it's okay. And so my worst case scenario was moving back home to Coffs Harbour to loving parents who would support me and finishing a degree and then getting a corporate job. And so, you know, I took the plunge, went down there, glad I liked the food. Um, <laughs> but again, we could have been selling socks. So I think your success in business uh, is about some of the tenacity and different things, but there's also there is elements of luck as well because we could have been a sock factory and I would have signed up for it. And would I be sitting here in this podcast now? Maybe, maybe not. But it depends how cool the socks were. That's very true. If they were happy socks back then, they would have been very good. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe I'd be running the podcast yeah. and interviewing you. But the, but then, you know, we were fortunate. The Mexican wave was coming. People knew about Mexican food, so it wasn't. I had this huge insight of Mexican food's going to be the next big thing. It was more, hey, going on an adventure. Believe in in Sam Prince, the founder. I believe in the concept. We're aligned by a lot of common values and doing good in the world. And then we, you know, we were tenacious and. And just figured it out along the way. And why do you think he asked you to be the CEO? It's really a couple of reasons, I think. I think that, you know, one, he could afford me. Um, I wasn't well, That's always the first and most thing. important. Yeah, I was on 40 grand a year as a contractor and, you know, had my own car and paying my own fuel and things and, you know, but we were a scratch and he wasn't drawing a wage at all. So, like, it was, you know, because we didn't have any debt, we didn't have any credit cards, we didn't have any investors and so, you know, we did a lot with a little and, you know, it's, it, it was like true startup story. Like I was on sites building locations. I would do, you know, I do some of this, I wouldn't do the electrical work or the plumbing, but I do tiling, I do carpentry work. I, I would even, you know, sleep in a sleeping bag at a restaurant sometimes while people are partying down the street. Like, you know, we did whatever it took to, to get there. And so, you know, like, yeah, you, that it was an amazing foundation of, of just pushing and sacrificing a lot, which other people weren't prepared to do. And so, but because that he saw something in me that nobody had ever seen before, like I, I felt like a, it was my responsibility to try and prove him that he was the right decision as well. So, yeah, there was definitely times where I may have not been doing a good job and, you know, he would push me to be better or, you know, his, his mind of, way that he looked at problems and analyzing different solutions and just pushing till you get the right answer was, you know, it was really important and it serves me still well today. And what do you think, like, I mean, a hundred restaurants, that's a lot of restaurants. 
what do you think, what was the point when you guys realized, okay, this is working, like we can start scaling? How, how did you know you were at that point? Well, again, it was, so Sam, the day that he opened the first location, he put franchises now available in the front window. You know, he didn't sell a franchise, I think, for two, three years. But, uh, you know, it was a, that belief. And, you know, we also surrounded ourselves with people who had worked in companies who had done it before as well. And so I think that that was the big thing is like Zambrero is very much like a Mexican subway in terms of the footprint, in terms of the the line. Like we chose to take a lot from other companies who had done it before us because, again, you know, 95% of companies can follow business models of others who have done it before. And so, you know, so we, we learned from a lot of people around that and, you know, we had, we're a great product. We had, a, we were an okay brand to begin with. We got a lot better at that, but, you know, we, I think we we're good people and we we're, you know, pursuing something grandiose that people want to be part of that journey. And so you know, I think when you talk about it, it's like our dream is to open up a hundred locations uh, that was the vision. That's that was the vision. And we actually would say the words like a dream, you know, because there's not many people who are who are living out the pursuit of their dreams. You know, you start off young and you've got dreams and things like that, but you don't pursue them. You get caught up in life. And so I think when you when you meet somebody who is pursuing their dreams, regardless whether or not you can directly help them or not, like you be inspired. And so it's just even some of the language that we used, which was true and genuine, but – we got so much help from different people along the way to, to turn Zebra into what it is today. And when a brand's growing, like you touched on the branding and, you know, building a strong brand. And a cub's done a lot of times. We've up, how many times have we updated the brand, Laura? Maybe like three times? Twice. We're still twice in just seven and a half, eight years. Um, sorry, and we started with one. So that's three brands yeah. in, in that period of time or three renditions of it. How did you – did it get to a point where you guys are like, okay, well, we're, you know, there's a few more stores now. We better make sure we look all the same. And we, you know, is, is that kind of, was that the thing? And you, did you use a company to come in and help you guys do that? Or, or what was the process? Yeah. So when I was coming in, we were changing it to the second brand and then we changed it again and then it tweaked it again. So the Zambrero brand that it is today is sort of the third iteration, but Sort of, it's the fourth iteration, but the third iteration was like a really swift one change. It was the same logo, but it was different, slightly different colors, and we went with the block green in the end. Um, yeah, the very first one, it was a Zambrero with a, a gold rainbow and a cactus, like it's classic sort of Mexican, like some, like almost like a Montezuma's type brand. And then the other one, we actually had issues with it being a hard brand especially when you're dealing with um building restaurants and things like some are easy to see from afar some are not easy to see you know and so you do have to consider the application of your of your uh design when you're dealing with restaurants and things so i think that we didn't take that into consideration when we were doing that middle design but that's sort of the as we learned and we got better it was actually through you know, some challenges that we're having with the actual brand itself being recognizable down the street and, mm. you know. Things you don't think about when you're doing it. Yeah. yeah, you you have to, it, you know, sometimes you just got to start and then you learn, it, it forces you to kind yeah. of learn. Whereas Flav, though, from the beginning, so we, we used a design arm, but we didn't use a marketing agency or a design, of, design firm, whereas, you know, coming up this time around with Flav, 
we know that we need to be able to do under on a signing. We know that we need to be able to be visible enough. It can go in a circular sign because depending on landlords requirements and it's always like little things that you learn from the first time round that are not so obvious until you actually go through it yourself that you get to, you know, reiterate and focus on for this time round with, yeah. with Flav. And, and so then how, when did you get involved in the entourage? So the entourage, I went to the first event in. Oh, their first event ever. Oh, or your, their, fir- your first event. My first, you I think I went to their second ever unconvention. So the first one I think was in Melbourne because that's where Jack was originally from. And then I went to the, I actually met Jack in a place called the Fishbowl. It was originally, it was before Fishburners. And Mike Casey and the guys from Grad Connection had a. It was like one of the first share offices in in Sydney. And and Jack Delosa and um, his then uh, one only team member were based there. And then Zambrera, we were about to move up from Canberra, and so we had hired like one desk in there. And so you know, we just we just won the fastest, one of the top 10 fastest growing franchises in Australia. I think we're at six or seven locations. So you know, 2010, 2011, and Jack goes, oh, oh, you're Stuart, you're that Zambrero guy. Um, do you want to come along to the event I'm hosting on? And I'm like, oh, I can't afford it. And he's like, no, 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 I'm in startup too. Like you can come along on my shout. And so I went there and I'm like, this is amazing. And he was selling a two-day event the following week after after the unconvention and, you know, it was $1,000 or $2,000 and I said, hey, I'd love to come but I can't afford it. And so he, he got me there and I sit down and then by morning tea time we had a break and I went up to him and I said, this is so amazing. I want to be part of this because, you know, not only to be able to give back to the entrepreneurial community but, you know, just be around other people. The people who I met on that weekend, four out of my six groomsmen, I met that day. Wow. Yeah. And, and what do you think made it so special? I think it was that, you know, running businesses, especially when you're really young, is very lonely because, I mean, at least when you get older, you're still alone. Um, but your peers, there's more p- business owners around you so you can leverage on those from peers uh, as peers. Like I've got other franchise or mates, you know, I'm now not the youngest person in the room anymore, but – you know, back then when you're 23, you're 24, you're start, you've got zero money, you don't have a family. Like there's not many people who- You relate are, to in that. Yeah, in you relate to in that space. And so, you know, I got to meet some amazing lifelong friends that day and that weekend. But then, you know, after only morning tea, I said to Jack, I said, hey, how can I be a part of this? And he's like, oh, you've got six restaurants. You're probably good at operations. Do you want to present tomorrow? And so <laughs> that night I did a- presentation and then did a three hour talk on how to systemize your business. Oh my God. <laughs> Cause Jack was still faking it till you make it as well. Yeah. Like, well, and yeah, then the start. Yeah. And then off the, off the back of that is that I did some work because I was again, so poor, I was doing some mentoring and I was getting paid 60 bucks an hour by the entourage to go and mentor some of the people. But you know, by, you know, I was always taught and this is what they do in medicine is that if you see one, do one, teach one to become a master of anything. And so by actually sort of mentoring some of the the upcoming businesses through the entourage, you know, they would ask me different questions that I had never asked myself. And so it made me better at business. And I also got to exposure to so many different businesses from different industries that 
you know, it supercharged your learning because you might meet a concreter who's structuring a contract that way. I'm like, hey, that could work over here or you learn something from a lawyer or accountant. And so, you know, it, uh, that, that exposure was huge. And then when Jack had the, was focusing, was, had the opportunity to buy MBE Education, which is a company that he was a minority shareholder in, he needed to raise some capital. I, I um, used all my money to invest in the business uh, along with Dominic Carosa. And so, but then I knew and hoped that one day when I exited Zambrero, I'd have some money and I wanted to invest in startups. And I'd read that if you invest in startups, it's all about getting in at the early stage, you know, so you can have the more, most likely chance of 100x exits. And I figured that entrepreneurs who are willing to invest in their own education were the right type of investors to back, oh, the entrepreneurs to back because, you know, the best sports people in the world have amazing coaches and they seek out to be better. Personal development. They're Personal just always, development. They're just try, committed yeah. to getting better. Yeah, so I figured that if I invested in the entourage, not only did I love the business and believe where it was going, I'd have access to more investment opportunities of people who were going through the entrepreneur community who had less ego because they're investing in their own education. But it's interesting that you were already planning your future so so yeah. much. You know, you're already like, okay, well, I'm gonna um, uh, I'm gonna exit uh, Zimbrero at some point. I'm gonna pocket some cash. What am I? Yeah, I need to figure out what I'm gonna do with that cash. Well, I do want to invest because I've enjoyed mentoring people and whatnot. So I'm gonna invest in the entourage or be involved in any way in the entourage now to give me a pool of people to then connect with foreign, it's just all, it was very, it's very forward thinking, mm. particularly for a young guy at that point. Yeah. It, uh, it's one of my few moments of brilliance, but I, I, it's usually, it's usually like thinking of the day and being reactive. So, but I am very proud of that and it has paid off. I've made, you know, probably close to a dozen investments of different people who have been through that network and, you know, some of my best uh, returns have come through investing in different companies there and, and, you know, it's still an amazing business that does incredibly well. I was on the board for 10 years. I'm no longer on the board. You know, the business is, I don't add any value to it. It, it grows incredibly well. I get to go to the fun events at times. And, um, but, you know, Jack and Tim and the team over there do a really good job. So. Yeah. Jack's, Jack's great at what he does. Eh? And he loves being, he loves the stage. He's, he's good at it. He's very good at it. Yeah. yeah. I've never been, I should really, I should really go and experience it one yeah. day. Um, and how long were you, how uh, how long were you with Zambrero before it exited? Uh, so I was on board for six and a half years. Um, so taking it from two restaurants to a hundred, and then we'd sold. Oh, so you stayed for the hundred? Yeah, that's pretty special. So we we we'd sold a we'd sold another two hundred and fifty though by the time that I left um, through area developer agreements. So it's almost like contracting a whole bunch of them. So we grew through a very similar way that Subway did, and so getting it to that. Point. Um, and then I actually sold my shares back to Sam. Um, and so, you know, and then he bought me out over a two year period. And so that, that gave me an opportunity to get married, run around the world for a year and um, make a whole bunch of investments. And, you know, now five years, six years on, go back into hospitality and in the form of life. It's a funny thing when a lot of young men say too, like, I need to make some money so I can get married. <laughs> you know, like it's it's a conscious thing you have to think about. It's like, well, okay, shit's expensive after you. Just getting married alone is expensive. It gets more expensive after. Like, I need to make some money so I can actually do that. Like, I, I think that's a that's a a, a a conscious thought at the at the forefront of a lot a lot of young men's 
Uh, oh, and nice. to, to 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 be clear, the primary reason was not because that. I'm aware, but yeah, it's just yeah, but, but, but the yeah. fact that that was one of the things you said, like yeah. it just I've heard it so many times. Well, I hear it all the time from people. Yeah, it's just it's such a funny, not burden. It's just a funny responsibility that young young men or young people um, carry. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, and and so how was switching? Because once you uh, exited Zambrero, you've got a bit of cash. And is that when you opened Twio or you switched first to just investing yourself personally? So so Twio started originally as not meaning to be a company that was ever going to exist. It, when it was actually when I was uh, investing in the entourage, I looked at the shareholder register and I was going to create Cook Investments. And then <laughs> I saw Jack's was limitless, break free, PTY limited or, you know, and and then somebody else had another name and then I heard another mate of mine said Bromance PTY Limited. I'm like, oh, I have to come up with a cool name as well. Um, and so I came up with Twio, which stands for The World Is Your Oyster. Um, oh, and, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a little bit cheesy like me. And But I didn't ever think that it was actually going to see the light of day. But then after exiting Zambrero, we paid a, you know Zambrero's old designer to – just create a logo, some business cards, super um, basic website. And so that when my wife and I were traveling around the world on our one-year trip, on our one-year honeymoon, um, uh, we at least – we knew that we'd meet some interesting people. And so being able to give them a business card, to be able to them to sort of look us up there, to be able to create a bit of validity about who we were and what we're doing. And so that was sort of the first inkling of Twire didn't really do anything about except manage personal investments for uh, until probably 2018, 19. And then, then such time is that I actually got back in contact with my old uh, CFO uh, from Zambrero, who's also Sam Prince's CFO of his entire group at a point in time. And, you know, he and I had an amazing relationship uh Ryan Barnes, and so I was actually invested in in Fitstop, and Fitstop needed a virtual CFO because you know it's hard to be a chair or an advisor to a company if they didn't, if they don't have strong financials or strong forecasts. And Fitstop, just to be clear, is the gym chain that you, Correct. you, you, yeah, you got involved yeah. in that so, we were speaking about before. Yeah, and so that was actually sort of the kickoff for that. And Ryan was a CFO, COO at another startup, and you know that was growing really quickly and still growing today and and then you know I said after after working together in that one this is pre-flav and said you know hey I could get you a few more of those through the different connections and then after six months of doing that we're like hey we're working together on everything so and I knew that Flav was coming down the pipeline as well and he and I are just a like a perfect duo you know yin and yang type individuals who complement each other's um, strengths and weaknesses incredibly. And so what we did is we rolled everything in together, investments and consulting clients and things, and that was sort of the formation of of Twio um, as a sort of a, like actual business and not just That's a, how the advisory part came in. The, correct. The, what do you call it, outsource CFO? Yeah, the virtual CFO virtual and corporate CFO. advisory piece. And, and then and, – and, and did the, you say you went on a one-year honeymoon? Honeymoon? Yeah. How was that? It was awesome. What made you do a year? So at the time I was – All that Zambrero. <laughs> Zambrero. I mean yeah. when you – so my wife was the CEO of a charity uh, also with Zamprints 
Um, she was looking after neglected diseases in remote Indigenous communities. And so I had this glamorous role for Zamburo. By that time, it was starting to get more, more glamorous. The beginning wasn't as glamorous. That was pretty hard. But it, towards the end, you know, you're traveling around the world, you're <laughs> opening up different territories, you're meeting different people, going to conferences. My wife was going out in the outback working with remote Indigenous communities and, you know, sometimes coming home with scabies and things because, you know, that's the that's the disease that they were working on at first. And so, you know, she needed a – we both needed a very well-earned break. And so – Tim Morris, who's now the CEO of the Entourage, he actually was, you know, I was chatting to him and wondering what we were going to do. And, you know, he said, like, take an extended time off, like don't rush into your next thing. You know, him and his wife had worked virtually uh, and spent nine months going through Southeast Asia. And so, you know, we decided, screw it, let's just take a year off. And so what we did is on this, you know, giant wall, we, we researched every sort of hundred things you must do before you die and sort of put them on post-it notes and color-coded it based off which uh, continent they were. So like green was South America, North America, and then so you, then you'd have a the the months uh, across the top. So we'd cluster it. So if you go, you know, um, carnivals in the first week of February, and so that would be in the February column under a green post-it note, and then you'd get, you know. Um, La Tomatia Festival in Spain, and it was on there. And so we then started putting all of these like 100, 200 different things on the wall, and then you start to see the clusters. And so we then decided, okay, make our way through North America, then South America, through Europe, and you know, we did you know 20-plus countries in the, in the year. Wow. It was a little bit too intense. Like if I was going to do it again, I would have probably based ourselves and done that a couple of times. But, you know, you don't – it's it's a lot long time uh, for a year. Especially for it, well, you know what? It'll test a new couple's uh, oh, yeah. relationship. Like that, that, if you survive one year travel after you're married, that you're good for gold. That's and it. and we'd literally gone from a year of long distance the year before that. So in yeah, is that because of her work and whatnot? She was yeah, traveling. Well, she was work, and then I was based in Bangkok for a period of time as well with Zambrero. So, and and obviously now, uh, you guys work. Quite, your co-CEOs, is that yeah. correct, of correct. Flav. Yeah. How's it working with your your wife on a daily basis? It's it's. Or how do you manage it correctly? How do we well? manage it? Mm. So we've we've always been across the investment piece as well, and I think that sort of goes to the same reason why you know partnering with Ryan is so important. It's like you know one plus one equals three, and I think it's really the same with with my wife Samantha, uh, who's also a Sam as well, which got very confusing at times with. Uh, my old business partner, Sam Prince. But the you know, one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given by um, Bob LaPointe, who's the ex-global CEO of KFC, he said, you know, a lot of people make the mistake when it comes to their partner, which is the most important decision you can probably make in your life and also be the most expensive if you get it wrong, is a lot of people find somebody they want to spend the rest of their life with and then join them on that journey, then, then work out where they want to go. Um, but really you should work out where you want to go and then find somebody to join you on that journey. And so Samantha and I both knew what we wanted to do. We wanted to work in business, build better companies and so that, and be good people. Uh, and that was our – and explore the world together. And we, because we'd grown up in business together as well, that was really good. Like we both started off with nothing and you know, we lived with our parents for a period of time while startup CEO was Zambrero. And so, you know, I think that that was that was really important. So, like having that strong foundation and that base of values is really really important. 
but then also knowing where each other's weaknesses and strengths are. So, you know, in Flav, I've got a lot more of the operational background and experience um, from running Zambrero and especially from franchising and finance, whereas she's a marketer, brand, people. She's also a great face to the company. Great face to the company. Yeah. Everybody forgets who I am when she comes yeah. out anyway, and she's far cooler than me as well. Yeah, so, yeah. She's, got, and yeah. she's got a great smile. Great like she, yeah. she, you get the great energy. And so, but she's a better negotiator than I am. Uh, she can sit in uncomfortable silence when negotiating with people as well. So, you know, I'll go away and read a magazine and, uh, but she'll get the better deal. She uh, has ability to read people as well. So anything from a hiring standpoint, I, you know, even for other businesses or that we've been involved in or even meeting investors, like she's, she'll point out and say, that one's going to be trouble. That one's going to be uh, uh be amazing and your greatest asset or you should give that person a chance. You know, for me, being a country country kid, I give everybody a chance. But Sam is the one who's always been right with people as well. So, again, we complement each other really well. It's not without its challenges and the ability to switch off as well because you're living and breathing a company that you're both working in. So you – and you can – and our team will say that they'll – occasionally be a, a, a bicker or two. Um, and, but again, that's par for the course, but I think, you know, overall it's super fun and we get to join the journey and, you know, high five and we get to really understand what each other's day is like going through. And I think that's really rare. I saw you guys um, did a, you just completed a capital raise yeah. for Flav and you, did you use a crowdfunding platform? Yeah, we did. So half of it we've, we did through sophisticated investors and then we did um, some of the close off with virtual. Um, and so with the crowdfunding campaign, so there, yeah, so a lot of people have got to see that and, and that also, you know, has continued to bring out, which we're still working. We only closed, you know, two weeks ago at the time of this recording, but we uh, still have got a number of interests from franchise requests to potential, uh, other investors as well. So, you know, we still are continuing some of the conversations with potential investors. Um, they saw the biggest sophisticated family offices. But what, what I wanted to ask was what was the – so I'm actually a big fa fan of the crowdfunding platform, equity crowdfunding. Yeah. Um, and we've got a Cub member um, uh, whose company is called On Market yeah. who, 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 yeah. who does it. I actually want to use them for BOA at one point. Um, but what was the reasons you wanted to, to – what was the reason you wanted to use crowdfunding? Like what was the thinking process towards going that, that direction as opposed to getting more uh, sophisticated investors? So I think that it, it is a lot of work to get in, to do it, but the amount of raving fans and, you know, people who are on your side now, you end up with like 500 new shareholders. Uh, it doesn't complicate too much in the reporting structures or things, but you've got now 500 people who you're raving fans who are pushing you hard who are there as your support, you know. So I think some companies like Flav, really spot on, B2C company, you see a lot of beer companies doing it. Boa I think would be a really good opportunity for it because, again, it gets that engagement and, you know, especially ones like food or, you know, what Boa's trying doing as well is you they can become those, you know, points of influence as well to be able to then go and expand it because, you know, everybody wants their company, their own company that they've got a stake in, but it's also a chance to share in the upside as well. I, one of the companies that really inspires my wife and I is Starbucks, and I know they suck in Australia, but you know globally they're an amazing company, 
And you know, one of our board members, she started off at Starbucks when there was only 50 locations and she finished when there was 17,500. And she's now based in China. She helped was part of the opening team of 12 different countries. But she got to buy her first house because of the options or shares she got as a system manager. And so yeah, that was working as an employee. But, you know, I think what this, you know, on market concept. and equitize and the same sort of concept and virtual is like you get to provide opportunities for people who invest in the brands that they love. Why should only sophisticated investors get access to those opportunities. Yeah, I love it. it, it it's democratizing the ability for people to to invest in what's good. Because to be a sophisticated investor, don't you need $2 million worth of assets or, or something? A quarter, yeah, and or a quarter million dollars worth of- um, Yeah, um, so it is a high, bar, it's a high bar. It's a high bar to, to for, for most people to, to have. And yeah. I think companies like Virtual or, or On Market, yeah. what they're doing is fantastic. It, you know, you can throw 10 grand in. Yeah, and well, it's a max you can do. So you can throw up to 10 grand as a, not a sophisticated investor, so a retail. And so again, you cap your people's risks. So, but it's, um, yeah, I think it's really cool. And uh, it's been an amazing process to go through. I'm exhausted, but- It was tiring? Yeah. Why would it be more tiring though than the um, private investors? Because wouldn't, I, like the private investors, you have to put a lot more one-on-one -on -one time in with, and they're going to ask a lot more questions and all that. Whereas the cap, whereas um, um, crowdfunding, you put the information up on the platform, they've read, read the information. You, I mean, you can't talk to all the people that invest, there's too many people anyway. I would have imagined it would have been easier than than the private. It's probably, and maybe it's because we did both as well. Like we started with the- uh, Yeah, you wanted to test both there. Yeah, <laughs> to test both. But no, I think, I think there's probably a lot more upfront work with the crowdfunding piece. You know, when you're doing the capital raise, you'll still build out the pitch deck, the data and the financial model, but you have a more stringent requirements around your reporting and, um, and putting together a lot more documentation to make sure that bad operators don't get through the process and system. Now, you know, virtual and on market and the like, they don't guarantee that they're great investments, but they get, they basically have got a lot of systems and process to make sure that the wrong type of people aren't going and trying to rip off um, retail investors. And as they well. do check. They, they, I mean, they obviously, a lot of the time, these guys are ex investment bankers and things. Like I know our cub members that that uh, own, um, that, that are partners in On Market, they were investment bankers. They know yeah, how to read the companies. Guys, yeah, yeah they're, 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 they're guys that are, for example, much more advanced as someone like myself at, at analyzing companies and markets and trajectories and, and, and doing background checks and all that type of thing. So I, I, I really like that. They, 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 you won't even go live. Like you have to get expressions of interest. You have to get a certain amount before of percentage of your minimum raise before they'll even put you live. Then unless you get the convert those EOIs to actual signups, they won't even take you live to the public. Like there's there's hurdles to so, get through. Yeah. And do you know who you have to meet? I don't know how I haven't thought about this. Although maybe I do because I really just met him only maybe four months ago. Did you listen to the – Wait, have we released the David Keir episode yet? Okay, so to the listeners, go back and listen <laughs> to David Keir's episode. You've got to meet him. Okay. One of my favorite um, um, uh, uh, new members, I guess, I don't he's probably been a member for around close to a year now, but but one of my favorite new members that I've met 
Um, and he he's an expert in actually your field in scaling uh, uh, food companies and franchises. Yeah. Um, he was he's he's the guy that took Domino's to China and uh, grew it into what's now I think it's the largest franchise or food franchise in China. It's it got ballistic. He, he's back here now. Yeah, wow! But he's and he's one of the smartest guys. He's an expert in scaling. He's even helped me with cap. You got to talk to yeah, him. Definitely. He he'd probably just have good contacts for you and and, and things. You know, but he's just a really lovely man as well. I'll, I'll do it yeah, after awesome. this. Um, well, okay. So it's very clear you've been in a lot of different type of businesses. Um, I guess I wanted to ask what are in what are some businesses? It just briefly, uh, just because of time, uh, businesses that have failed that you've been involved in or that you've seen not do well. You don't have to mention the business, but, but just take it, it. I want you to mention why you think that happened and why the ones that you, that we have mentioned that have done really well, why they were successful. So in other words, in a much shorter and easier question, what makes businesses successful as opposed to the ones that, that are not? I'd say – to make that question even yeah, shorter, but what makes businesses successful? <laughs> so I'd say it, it, it does come down to the founder and their driving force and the some of the traits that they have around them of resilience and the ability to problem solve and, you know, be flexible and get to really obsess about the business. I think that's 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 a has to be there. But then there's also a component of luck, I do believe that, timing of the markets, whether or not it's your, you know, depending on market conditions and whether or not there's capital available. Like there's some amazing companies that have been billion dollar companies that wouldn't do well today. And there's some ones that have uh, failed that, or that would do really, really well today. So it is about that right timing piece. And sometimes that's luck, sometimes that's skill, but there is a big, I do believe in a fair bit of luck when it comes to that. So, but let's put that to the side because that's a very uncontrollable piece. But you know, I think it's also the ability to fail fast and you know, continually tweaking and reiterating, trialing, especially now more than ever. You know, I think the companies who can't move nimbly are the ones who are going to get swallowed up. Uh, you know, the ability to A/B test, the ability to go and sell pre-sale products that haven't even been created yet to test the market demand. You know, uh, Jeremy Levitt is one of my favorite um, board members who I've ever been on a board with or, or, or been around. And Who is he? He's a founder of Service Seeking and, you know, he's on the board of the Entourage and that's how I've met him and become friends with him. But, you know, his ability to stand up a website and check web traffic in, in an hour and go, nah, probably wouldn't, and look at how much the cost of acquisition of uh, Google AdWords are and in 20 minutes, like – you know, whereas some people, you know, who did an MBA might want to study and research and do months and months and months. Like that's not the way that the world works anymore. It's like you have to be nimble. You have to look around what are the different businesses that are going to be competing and what are the different ways that you can have a, have an edge on your competitors. So basically I really think like what you said at the start, it comes down to the founder and to them always wanting to improve. Because, yes, I actually love the comparison about you know, some businesses that worked then wouldn't work now. That's true, but the person behind that business would find the thing that works now. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really about being identifying the, the founder. There's one of my mentors who invested in Boa, um, one of the most successful business uh, businessmen in, in in the country. He literally said to me, "He goes, look, like I said, oh, I want to, you know, I'm going to tell you about this thing," um, um, and he said, uh, and he what did he say? No, what did I say? I said to him, 
I want to take about this thing. Look, I don't need, because I didn't need any more capital, but I, I know the power of who you surround yourself with is the most important thing. And so I said to him, look, I'd, I'd love to show you. Anyway, he goes, look, I didn't even need to see. He said, I backed the jockey, yeah. not the horse. And he goes, look, I, so I, anyway, I briefly said what it was. He goes, look, I'll give you uh, whatever. Get it successful. Get it to the point where it needs to go global and then come talk to me and I'll, I'll, I'll sort it out. Until that point, I don't need to hear about it. And, but it was just as simple as that. It was like it backed. he backed the person. Yeah. And I think what founders and, and listeners can take from it is like you are important. You need to show your capabilities, your past capabilities, your your past proof, your current capabilities, your future ambitions, the fact that you're always trying to get better, the fact that you're trying to push the company forwards. Like you are so important to to investors, to your team, to your clients. Um, I fully agree. Yeah, and also knowing where your 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 where areas of weakness are as well. And, and hiring and bringing on those right partners or whether or not it's a co-founder or whether or not it's a great CEO or COO or, you know, chief marketing officer, like whatever it is, just being aware of your flaws because I think that's important as well when when you are a, a leader. like you know, It's probably the most important. <laughs> like I am I'm not the best restaurant operator in the world. I'm good at the business of restaurants but – you know, developing the systems in an actual restaurant to provide the service and piece. I could do it better than most, but I have brought on amazing talent for that because I know that area is not as strong as like others who have been just operators for 20 years. So like it's the way that we're building Flav as well. I love it. Let's leave the conversation there. To our listeners, if you want to find out more about Stuart Cook, you can go to cup.club forward slash podcast, check out his favorite book recommendations, greatest lessons in business, favorite quote, much, much more. You can also find uh, all of our, our previous guests uh, up there with with all their uh, book recommendations. It really is just a great book recommendation website, <laughs> that website. We should probably put more stuff on there. But but it is fantastic. If you want to catch up with Cub on social media, it's at Club United Business. It's equally as awesome. Stewie, thank you so much for, for uh, uh, not just being a good friend, a Cub member, but for just being an awesome entrepreneur and, and for sharing this, sharing all these lessons with us today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the show.